Chapter forty four of Leviathan. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Leviathan by Thomas Hobbes. Chapter forty four of Spiritual Darkness from the Misinterpretation of Scripture. Part two. To prove that the soul, separated from the body, liveth eternally, not only the souls of the elect, by a special grace, and restoration of the eternal life which Adam lost by sin, and our Saviour restored by the sacrifice of himself to the faithful, but also the souls of reprobates, as a property naturally consequent to the instance of mankind, without other grace of God but that which is universally given to all mankind. There are diverse places which at the first sight seem sufficiently to serve the turn, but such as when I compare them with that which I have before, chapter 38, alleged out of the fourteenth of Job, seem to me much more subject to a diverse interpretation than the words of Job. And first there are the words of Solomon. Then shall the dust return to the dust, as it was, and the spirit shall return to God that gave it. Ecclesiastes 12.7. Which may bear well enough, if there be no other text directly against it, this interpretation, that only God knows, but man not, what becomes of a man's spirit when he expireth and the same Solomon, in the same book, delivereth the same sentence in the sense I have given it. His words are, All go to the same place, all are of the dust, and all turn to dust again. Who knoweth that the spirit of man goeth upward, and that the spirit of the beast goeth downward to the earth? Ibid. 3. 20, 21. That is, none knows but God, nor is it an unusual phrase to say of things we understand not, God knows what, and God knows where. That of Genesis 5.24, Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him, which is expounded, Hebrews 11.5, he was translated, that he should not die, and was not found, because God had translated him. For before his translation he had this testimony, that he pleased God, making as much for the immortality of the body as of the soul, proveth that this his translation was peculiar to them that please God, not common to them with the wicked, and depending on grace, not on nature. But on the contrary, what interpretation shall we give, besides the literal sense of the words of Solomon, that which befalleth the sons of men befalleth beasts, even one thing befalleth them, as the one dieth, so the other, yea, they have all one breath, so that a man hath no pre-eminence above a beast, for all is vanity. Ibid. 3.19. By the literal sense, here is no natural immortality of the soul, nor yet any repugnancy with the life eternal, which the elect shall enjoy by grace. And better is he that hath not yet been than both they, Ibid. 4.3, that is, than they that live or have lived, which if the soul of all of them that have lived were immortal, were a hard saying, for then to have an immortal soul were worse than to have no soul at all. And again, the living know they shall die, but the dead know not anything. Ibid 9.5. That is, naturally, and before the resurrection of the body. Another place which seems to make for a natural immortality of the soul is that where our Saviour saith that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are living. But this is spoken of the promise of God, and of their certitude to rise again, not of a life then actual, and in the same sense that God said to Adam, that on the day he should eat of the forbidden fruit, he should certainly die. From that time forward he was a dead man by sentence, 
but not by execution, till almost a thousand years after. So Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were alive by promise, then, when Christ spoke, but are not actually till the resurrection. And the history of Dives and Lazarus make nothing against this, if we take it, as it is, for a parable. But there be other places of the New Testament, where an immortality seemeth to be directly attributed to the wicked. For it is evident that they shall all rise to judgment. And it is said besides, in many places, that they shall go into everlasting fire, everlasting torments, everlasting punishments, and that the worm of conscience never dieth. And all this is comprehended in the word everlasting death, which is ordinarily interpreted everlasting life in torments. And yet I can find nowhere that any man shall live in torments everlastingly. Also it seemeth hard to say that God, who is the Father of mercies, that doth in heaven and earth all that he will, that hath the hearts of all men in his disposing, that worketh in men both to do and to will, and without whose free gift a man hath neither inclination to good nor repentance of evil, should punish men's transgressions without any end of time, with all the extremity of torture that men can imagine, and more. We are therefore to consider what the meaning is of everlasting fire, and other the like phrases of Scripture. I have shown already that the kingdom of God by Christ beginneth at the day of judgment, that in that day the faithful shall rise again, with glorious and spiritual bodies, and be his subjects in that his kingdom, which shall be eternal, that they shall neither marry, nor be given in marriage, nor eat and drink, as they did in their natural bodies, but live for ever in their individual persons, without the specifical eternity of generation, and that the reprobates also shall rise again, to receive punishments for their sins, as also that those of the elect, which shall be alive in their earthly bodies at that day, shall have their bodies suddenly changed, and made spiritual and immortal. But that the bodies of the reprobate, who make the kingdom of Satan, shall also be glorious or spiritual bodies, or that they shall be as the angels of God, neither eating, nor drinking, nor engendering, or that their life shall be eternal in their individual persons, as the life of every faithful man is, or as the life of Adam had been if he had not sinned, there is no place of Scripture to prove it, save only those places concerning eternal torments, which may otherwise be interpreted. From whence may be inferred that, as the elect after the resurrection shall be restored to the estate wherein Adam was before he had sinned, so the reprobate shall be in the estate that Adam and his posterity were in after the sin committed, saving that God promised a Redeemer to Adam, and such of his seed as should trust in him and repent, but not to them that should die in their sins, as do the reprobate. These things considered, the texts that mention eternal fire, eternal torments, or the worm that never dieth, contradict not the doctrine of a second and everlasting death, in the proper and natural sense of the word death. The fire or torments prepared for the wicked in Gehenna, Tophet, or in what place soever, may continue for ever, and there may never want wicked men to be tormented in them, though not every one nor any one eternally. For the wicked, being left in the estate they were in after Adam's sin, may at the resurrection live as they did, marry and give in marriage, and have gross and corruptible bodies, as all mankind now have, and consequently may engender perpetually, after the resurrection, as they did before. For there is no place of Scripture to the contrary." 
For St. Paul, speaking of the resurrection, understandeth it only of the resurrection to life eternal, and not the resurrection to punishment, 1 Corinthians 15, and of the first he saith that the body is sown in corruption, raised in incorruption, sown in dishonour, raised in honour, sown in weakness, raised in power, sown a natural body, raised a spiritual body. There is no such thing can be said of the bodies of them that rise to punishment. So also our Saviour, when he speaketh of the nature of man after the resurrection, meaneth the resurrection to life eternal, not to punishment. The text is Luke 20, verses 34, 35, and 36, a fertile text. The children of the world marry, and are given in marriage, but they that shall be counted worthy to obtain that world, and the resurrection from the dead, neither marry nor are given in marriage, neither can they die any more, for they are equal to the angels, and are the children of God, being the children of the resurrection. The children of this world, that are in the estate which Adam left them in, shall marry and be given in marriage, that is, corrupt and generate successively, which is an immortality of the kind, but not of the persons of men. They are not worthy to be counted amongst them that shall obtain the next world, an absolute resurrection from the dead, but only a short time, as inmates of that world, and to the end only to receive condign punishment for their contumacy. The elect are the only children of the resurrection, that is to say, the sole heirs of eternal life. They only can die no more. It is they that are equal to the angels, and that are the children of God, and not the reprobate. The reprobate there remaineth after the resurrection a second and eternal death, between which resurrection and their second and eternal death is but a time of punishment and torment, and to last by succession of sinners thereunto, as long as the kind of man by propagation shall endure, which is eternally. Upon this doctrine of the natural eternity of separated souls is founded, as I said, the doctrine of purgatory. For supposing eternal life by grace only, there is no life but the life of the body, and no immortality till the resurrection. The texts for purgatory alleged by Bellarmine out of the conical scripture of the Old Testament are, first, the fasting of David for Saul and Jonathan, mentioned Second Samuel 1.12, and again Second Samuel 3.35, for the death of Abner. This fasting of David, he saith, was for the obtaining of something for them at God's hands, after their death, because after he had fasted to procure the recovery of his own child, as soon as he knew it was dead, he called for meat. Seeing then the soul hath an existence separate from the body, and nothing can be obtained by men's fasting for the souls that are already either in heaven or hell, it followeth that there be some souls of dead men that are neither in heaven nor in hell, and therefore they must be in some third place, which must be purgatory. And thus with hard straining he has wrested those places to the proof of a purgatory, whereas it is manifest that the ceremonies of mourning and fasting, when they are used for the death of men whose life was not profitable to the mourners, they are used for honour's sake to their persons. And when it is done for the death of them by whose life the mourners had benefit, it proceeds from their particular damage. And so David honoured Saul and Abner with his fasting, and in the death of his own child recomforted himself by receiving his ordinary food. In the other places which he alleged out of the Old Testament, there is not so much as any show or colour of proof. He brings in every text wherein there is the word anger, or fire, or burning, or purging, or cleansing, in case any of the fathers have but in a sermon rhetorically applied it to the doctrine of purgatory, 
already believed. The first verse of Psalm 37, O Lord, rebuke me not in thy wrath, nor chasten me in thy hot displeasure, what were this to purgatory, if Augustine had not applied the wrath to the fire of hell, and the displeasure to that of purgatory? And what is it to purgatory, that of Psalm 66.12, We went through fire and water, and thou broughtest us to a moist place, and other the like texts, with which the doctors of those times intended to adorn or extend their sermons or commentaries, hail to their purposes by force of wit. But he alleggeth other places of the New Testament that are not so easy to be answered. And first that of Matthew 12.32. Whosoever speaketh a word against the Son of Man, it shall be forgiven him. But whosoever speaketh against the Holy Ghost, it shall not be forgiven him, neither in this world, nor in the world to come. Where he will have purgatory to be the world to come, wherein some sins may be forgiven which in this world were not forgiven, notwithstanding that it is manifest there are but three worlds, one from the creation to the flood, which was destroyed by water, and is called in Scripture the old world, another from the flood to the day of judgment, which is the present world, and shall be destroyed by fire, and the third, which shall be from the day of judgment forward, everlasting, which is called the world to come, and in which it agreed by all there should be no purgatory, and therefore the world to come and purgatory are inconsistent. But what then can be the meaning of those our Saviour's words? I confess they are very hardly to be reconciled with all the doctrines now unanimously received, nor is it any shame to confess the profoundness of the Scripture to be too great to be sounded by the shortness of human understanding. Nevertheless, I may propound such things to the consideration of more learned divines, as the text itself suggesteth. And first, seeing to speak against the Holy Ghost, as being the third person of the Trinity, is to speak against the Church, in which the Holy Ghost resideth. It seemeth the comparison is made between the easiness of our Saviour, in bearing with offences done to him while he himself taught the world, that is, when he was on earth, and the severity of the pastors after him, against those which should deny their authority, which was from the Holy Ghost. As if he should say, You that deny me my power, nay, you that crucify me, shall be pardoned by me, as often as you turn unto me by repentance. But if you deny the power of them that teach you hereafter, by virtue of the Holy Ghost, they shall be inexorable, and shall not forgive you, but persecute you in this world, and leave you without absolution, though you turn to me, unless you turn also to them, to the punishments, as much as lies in them, of the world to come. And so the words may be taken as a prophecy or prediction concerning the times, as they have long been in the Christian church. Or if this be not the meaning, for I am not peremptory in such difficult places, perhaps there may be some place left after the resurrection for the repentance of some sinners. And there is also another place that seemeth to agree therewith. For considering the words of St. Paul, what shall they do which are baptized for the dead, if the dead not rise at all? Why also are they baptized for the dead? 1 Corinthians 15.29 A man may probably infer, as some have done, that in St. Paul's time there was a custom, by receiving baptism for the dead, as men that now believe are sureties and undertakers for the faith of infants that are not capable of believing, to undertake for the persons of their deceased friends, that they should be ready to obey and receive our Saviour, for their king at his coming again, and then the forgiveness of sins in the world to come has no need of a purgatory. But in both these interpretations there is so much of a paradox that I trust not to them, 
but propound them to those that are thoroughly versed in the scripture, to inquire if there be no clearer place that contradicts them. Only of thus much, I see evident scripture to persuade me that there is neither the word nor the thing of purgatory, neither in this nor any other text, nor anything that can prove a necessity of a place for the soul without the body, neither for the soul of Lazarus during the four days he was dead, nor for the souls of them which the Roman Church pretend to be tormented now in purgatory. For God that could give a life to a piece of clay hath the same power to give life again to a dead man, and to renew his inanimate and rotten carcass into a glorious, spiritual, and immortal body. Another place is that of First Corinthians 3, where it is said that they which build stubble, hay, etc., on the true foundation, their work shall perish, but they themselves shall be saved, but as through fire. This fire he will have to be the fire of purgatory. The words, as I have said before, are an allusion to those of Zechariah 13.9, where he saith, I will bring the third part through the fire, and refine them as silver is refined, and will try them as gold is tried, which is spoken of the coming of the Messiah in power and glory, that is, at the day of judgment, and conflagration of the present world, wherein the elect shall not be consumed, but be refined, that is, depose their erroneous doctrines and traditions, and have them, as it were, singed off, and shall afterwards call upon the name of the true God. In like manner the Apostle saith of them that, holding this foundation, Jesus is the Christ, shall build thereon some other doctrines that be erroneous, that they shall not be consumed in the fire which reneweth the world, but shall pass through it to salvation, but so as to see and relinquish their former errors. The builders are the pastors, the foundation, that Jesus is the Christ, the stubble and hay, false consequences drawn from it through ignorance or frailty, the gold, silver, and precious stones are their true doctrines, and their refining or purging, the relinquishing of their errors, in all which there is no colour at all for the burning of the incorporeal, that is to say, impotatable souls. A third place is that of 1 Corinthians 15.29, before mentioned, concerning baptism for the dead, out of which he concludeth first, that prayers for the dead are not unprofitable, and out of that, that there is a fire of purgatory, but neither of them rightly. For of many of the interpretations of the word baptism, he approveth this in the first place, that by baptism is meant, metaphorically, a baptism of penance, and that men are in this sense baptized when they fast, pray, and give alms, and so baptism for the dead and prayer for the dead is the same thing. But this is a metaphor, of which there is no example, neither in the scripture nor in any other use of language, and which is discordant to the harmony and scope of the scripture. The word baptism is used for being dipped in one's own blood, as Christ was upon the cross, and as most of the apostles were, for giving testimony of him. Mark 10.38 and Luke 12.50 but it is hard to say that prayer, fasting, and alms have any similitude with dipping. The same is also used, Matthew 3.11, which seemeth to make somewhat for a purgatory, for a purging with fire. But it is evident the fire and purging here mentioned is the same whereof the prophet Zechariah speaketh, I will bring the third part through the fire, will refine them, etc., Zechariah 13.9, and St. Peter after him, that the trial of your faith, which is made more precious than that of gold that perisheth, though it be tried with fire, might be found unto praise, and honour, and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. First Epistle, 1.7. And St. Paul, the fire shall try every man's work of what sort it is. First Corinthians, 3.13. 
but St. Peter and St. Paul speak of the fire that shall be at the second appearing of Christ, and the prophet Zechariah, of the day of judgment. And therefore this place of St. Matthew may be interpreted of the same, and then there will be no necessity of the fire of purgatory. Another interpretation of baptism for the dead is that which I have before mentioned, which he preferreth to the second place of probability, and thence also he inferreth the utility of prayer for the dead. For if after the resurrection such as have not heard of Christ, or not believed in him, may be received into Christ's kingdom, it is not in vain, after their death, that their friends should pray for them till they should be risen. But granting that God, at the prayers of the faithful, may convert unto him some of those that have not heard Christ preached, and consequently cannot have rejected Christ, that the charity of men in that point cannot be blamed. Yet this concludeth nothing for purgatory, because to rise from death to life is one thing, to rise from purgatory to life is another, as being arising from life to life, from a life in torments to a life in joy. A fourth place is that of Matthew 5.25. Agree with thine adversary quickly, whilst thou art in the way with him, lest at any time the adversary deliver thee to the judge, and the judge deliver thee to the officer, and thou be cast into prison. Verily I say unto thee, Thou shalt by no means come out thence, till thou hast paid the uttermost farthing. In which allegory the offender is the sinner, both the adversary and the judge is God, the way is this life, the prison is the grave, the officer, death, from which the sinner shall not rise again to eternal life, but to a second death, till he have paid the utmost farthing, or Christ pay it for him by his passion, which is a full ransom for all manner of sin, as well lesser sins as greater crimes, both being made by the passion of Christ equally venial. The fifth place is that of Matthew 5.22. Whosoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be guilty in judgment, and whosoever shall say to his brother Raka shall be guilty in the council. But whosoever shall say, Thou fool, shall be guilty to hell-fire. From which words he inferreth three sorts of sins, and three sorts of punishments, and that none of those sins but the last shall be punished with hell-fire, and consequently that after this life there is punishment of lesser sins in purgatory. Of which inference there is no colour in any interpretation that hath yet been given of them. Shall there be a distinction after this life of courts of justice, as there was amongst the Jews in our Saviour's time, to hear and determine diverse sorts of crimes, as the judges and the council? Shall not all judicature appertain to Christ and his apostles? To understand, therefore, this text, we are not to consider it solitarily, but jointly, with the words precedent and subsequent. Our Saviour in this chapter interpreteth the law of Moses, which the Jews thought was then fulfilled, when they had not transgressed the grammatical sense thereof. However, they had transgressed against the sentence or meaning of the legislator. Therefore, whereas they thought the sixth commandment was not broken but by killing a man, nor the seventh but when a man lay with a woman not his wife, our Saviour tells them, the inward anger of a man against his brother, if it be without just cause, is homicide. You have heard, saith he, the law of Moses, thou shalt not kill, and that whosoever shall kill shall be condemned before the judges, or before the session of the seventy. But I say unto you, to be angry with one's brother without cause, or to say unto him raka, or fool, is homicide, and shall be punished at the day of judgment, and session of Christ and his apostles, with hell-fire. 
so that those words were not used to distinguish between diverse crimes, and diverse courts of justice, and diverse punishments, but to tax the distinction between sin and sin, which the Jews drew not from the difference of the will in obeying God, but from the difference of their temporal courts of justice, and to show them that he that had the will to hurt his brother, though the effect appear but in reviling, or not at all, shall be cast into hell-fire by the judges and by the session, which shall be the same, not different, courts at the day of judgment. This considered, what can be drawn from this text to maintain purgatory, I cannot imagine. The sixth place is Luke 16.9. Make ye friends of the unrighteous mammon, that when ye fail, they may receive you into everlasting tabernacles. This he alleges to prove invocation of saints departed. But the sense is plain, that we should make friends with our riches of the poor, and thereby obtain their prayers whilst they live. He that giveth to the poor lendeth to the Lord. The seventh is Luke 23.42. Lord, remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. Therefore, saith he, there is remission of sins after this life, but the consequence is not good. Our Saviour then forgave him, and at his coming again in glory will remember to raise him again to life eternal. The eighth is Acts 2.24, where St. Peter saith of Christ, that God had raised him up, and loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible he should be holden of it, which he interprets to be a descent of Christ into purgatory, to loose some souls there from their torments, whereas it is manifest that it was Christ that was loosed. It was he that could not be holden of death or the grave, and not the souls in purgatory. But if that which Beza says in his notes on this place be well observed, there is none that will not see that instead of pains, it should be bands, and then there is no further cause to seek for purgatory in this text. End of chapter 44